Hello, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we have a really cool talk. I'm talking with Maria Kuehl, who has a deep body of knowledge about water law. Maria has a BS in resource conservation from the University of Montana. She is a ski patroller. She's an EMT. In the summer season, she's a trail crew worker, and she subs in as a firefighter. She's a runner, overall an outdoor enthusiast, and although we don't talk about it in the podcast, she's a very good artist. You can find her art on Instagram at Larkspur and Pine. Um, and most importantly, Maria is a really great friend to me. You can find Maria on Instagram as Ponderioskio. That's P-O-N-D-E-R-R-I-O-S-K-I-O. Ponderioskio on Instagram. And as I mentioned, you should check out her art at Larkspur and Pine on Instagram. Yeah, I really hope you enjoy this conversation. I just want to say a big thank you to all of you who are currently subscribing to the podcast and to those of you who have been tuning into episodes. Uh, knowing you're out there listening really makes it worth it for me. I've also really appreciated hearing from those of you who have been listening, and I would encourage anybody that wants to leave feedback or just say hi to get a hold of me on social media, Instagram, uh, or Twitter. I check my Instagram more. Thank you all for being patient while we got this episode out. As always, you can support the podcast by subscribing, by writing a review or rating on whatever platform you use for podcasts. If you're feeling generous, you can donate in the tip jar, which you should be able to find at the bottom of the show notes. And if you know somebody that might think that this episode or any of the previous episodes are interesting, please give it a recommendation. As I've said, I think that's the best way to get this podcast out there. Thank you all for your support. I really hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Maria. Hello. How's it going? Good morning. Good morning. Nice to have you here. Mm -hmm. Thanks for having me. No problem. So one of the reasons we're here to talk is because, well, first of all, you're a really good friend of mine, and we share a lot of interests as far as being outside goes and skiing, running, and it's only recently that I learned that you have a very deep body of knowledge that... <laughs> is related to water and how it's managed legally. Yeah. And so this is a very exciting time to explore that in its full depth. Very exciting time. So first of all, I think we should probably start by asking what is water in a legal sense and where do you find it physically and how do you define it legally? Okay. That's a couple questions. Yay. No, those are good questions. So good starting ones. So... Water, legally, is a, it's basically a public resource. It's owned by, owned, in quotation marks, by the federal government and administered by the states to the public. So mm. it's um, under what's called a public trust doctrine. And there are a couple different ways that it's actually managed throughout the West, or not just the West, uh, throughout the United States. So what's called the 100th meridian is approximately in the Midwest, um, is like, that the latitude or the longitude? It's the up and down longitude. One, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, so hundredth okay. meridian is the longitude, longitudinal line that uh, pretty much bisects the United States, and on 
the eastern side of the meridian mm-hmm. there is a lot more water just naturally okay like uh there are more streams more lakes it gets more precipitation in general um and then on the western side of the meridian it's a lot more arid so it doesn't get as much water it's a lot right. drier um most of the water that we get is seasonal and comes from snowmelt. Okay. So as far as like where water is, it's traditionally in lakes, it's in streams, it's in rivers, it's in the snowpack that's up in the mountains. Yeah. Um, and it's also in the ground in aquifers. There are a couple different types of aquifers. There are like the traditional ones where you see the diagram and it's like, okay, it's this like bubble underground that has right. like a certain level of water in it, but it mm-hmm. can also be like soil that's not as compacted that um, allows for the flow of water more easily and like every single river is connected to an aquifer um, just by the way that like the water that is above the water table that is surface water right usually has a what's called a hydrologic connection to an aquifer below it so it'll be like a stream is what's above and then going out from the stream in kind of like a cone Mm -hmm. um is where the water ends up going and like flowing from and it depends on like topography whether or not it's like low in a drainage like low in a dip or if it's like up on a hillside it'll be like a certain amount of the way down and so hydrology is (laughs) hard yeah so i i've just thought about it like as a kid pouring water on dry ground and seeing it go away really quickly and I don't know if this is right, but I'm almost imagining from what you're telling me that there's like, like if you imagine the ground as a sponge, the sponge has to get saturated to a certain point before it can sustain like a body of water on top of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I so think then, that's a good way to explain it. Then you have rivers flowing on top of the, the sponge. Yep. And okay. And so you're saying the eastern half of the U.S. is... M- just naturally more water is that because the ground is more saturated or is there just more precipitation in general that is a really good question for a hydrologist but um there's there's generally just a lot more precipitation annually uh they whereas some states in the west will get like eight inches of water Mm -hmm. annually in precipitation usually measured in like rain or generally rain and snow okay um places in the east will get like 35 inches of rain a year or like they are a lot more prone to flooding and like big storms like you um see in the south Mm -hmm. because they just generally get more water and like they're the east is a lot smaller than the west at least um in Mm. terms of that hundredth meridian like as you get closer and closer to the coast there are more like big storms that come into the atlantic and like up from it kind of is the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, the um, Caribbean area. Mm-hmm. The hundredth meridian. Do you know where that is in the in the U.S.? Is that like diagram? Okay, and that's different than the continental divide. Yes. So the continental divide um, is the top of the Rocky Mountains. It cuts like a third of the United States out. Okay. From, uh, so the hundredth meridian, like it cuts North Dakota and South Dakota in half, and then just goes down from there. And it actually oh, okay. um, bisects Texas, so western Texas versus eastern Texas, I think, from, like, um, like the Oklahoma panhandle to mm-hmm. the east of that um, is considered the eastern side of the 100th meridian. Um, okay. And this 
lovely diagram in a book called Water Law by Robin Kundis Craig. She's a great professor and educator out of Utah, I think. But this diagram says that less than 20 inches of rainfall uh, is what defines west of the 100th meridian, and more than 20 inches of rainfall is the eastern side. Mm. Are th- so those are just like averages? Yes. Okay. Wow. Okay. So the federal government basically has an idea of how much water is going to fall in the east and the west, and then their job is to allocate water to people or organizations or cities or so federal government basically holds water in trust for the states who hold it in trust for the people oh interesting Um, so federal government technically has like the last say on what happens with water Mm -hmm. um but each state is responsible for administering their amount of water and like giving out water rights to people okay um and it's a fairly dynamic process in that it kind of changes from year to year. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally, once you are given a water right, it is assumed that you will have that water for the rest of your water rights existence. And that's kind of what I was trying to figure out when I was doing my research. Like, what, how is that going to change with significantly less water being available mm. in the West specifically? Right. Um, Due to... Due to climate change and other such things. Okay. Okay, so when you... pollution. Oh, yeah. Wait, how does pollution decrease water? Um, So it doesn't decrease the quantity of water, technically. It decreases the quality, and therefore you can't use it unless you do a lot to it. Okay. Kind of like Silverboat Creek out of Butte, um, which actually isn't really a creek anymore. It got turned into like a sewage drainage ditch. For a long time yeah and then it's now it's grown over and looks like a big ditch with some grass in it um, yeah. but it doesn't uh, naturally run anymore because the berkeley pit connected to the groundwater that was feeding silverboat creek and then they've plugged that up so that they can treat all of the water in the berkeley pit which if you don't know is a super fun site outside of butte that is from a giant copper mine wait you so being other people <laughs> they they plugged the stream and they're using the water that would otherwise be in the stream to treat water in the Berkeley pit? So the Berkeley pit is what's called hydrolo- hydrologically connected uh-huh. to the underground water that fed Silverboat Creek. Okay. So, But because it is higher up on the hill, mm-hmm. it has first access to that water. Okay. And instead of the water going into the creek like it would and like coming up as surface water it fills the pit instead okay i don't know if they've actually like physically blocked off the water supply Hmm. to silverbow creek but most of the water that was in it is now in the pit uh and toxic and kills geese there they were but um usually so pit mining will often hit groundwater and then the water will fill the their pit oh so it's kind of like there's uh something we want here dig a hole and then that can be pretty disruptive to the flow of groundwater Mm -hmm. generally yes okay so the federal government holds it in trust for the states and the states holds it in trust for the citizens of the state what does it mean to hold something in trust um so to hold something in trust is basically like ownership Okay. I suppose. So technically the federal government 
owns all of the waters of the United States, which okay. is a really... So that term specifically has been debated mm-hmm. since it exi- started existing. The interest thing? Uh, no, waters of the United States. Like, what counts? Oh, okay. Um, so technically, some wetlands don't count as waters of the United States and therefore can be used for other things. Um, but the waters of the United States are what the federal government owns and then the states administer to people. Okay. And then who gets access to the water? Do you buy portions of water or, I mean, how do you get a water right, I suppose? Um, nowadays, especially in places that are over allocated, like there are a lot of water rights in Montana, mm-hmm. um, you get a water right by buying it. Okay. But back when Montana was being settled by um, Europeans and white people, not mm-hmm. um, native rights are something that we can talk about later, but they're okay. like a whole different thing. But back when Montana was being settled by white people and um, other folks, it the system of prior appropriation was in place, which means that basically the easiest way to explain prior appropriation is the phrase first in time, first in right. So the first okay. person to get to this stream and put it to a beneficial use gets the first water right on that stream. Okay. Um, and there are senior water right holders and junior water right holders. And the senior water right holders have a guarantee to their water before a junior water right holder gets it. So if there is a senior water right holder that is lower down on a stream that's using their water right for irrigation, Mm -hmm. they have to be able to get their water before somebody who is further upstream but has a more junior or a younger right can use their water. Okay, so there's a river flowing and I go and build a house and use the water to water my crops and then you come along and build a house upstream which technically because you're upstream you have access to more water is that right because it doesn't disperse or um sometimes you have access to more water sometimes you just have access to water first right um so like technicality is there's physically more access to water up the stream but then when you're down the stream if you got there first you get access to the water before the person who's physically closer to more water does yes okay Unless you're in the east, and then uh, if you own property that is on a stream or like has access to a body of water, you get to use that water no matter what. Interesting. So it's totally yeah. different east and west. Yep. Wow. Which is what I was trying to get at with the hundredth meridian. Like we, there are two completely different bodies of law, ta- like administering water on the eastern and western sides of the United States. Oh wow! Is there like different organizations that kind of govern them, or states? States. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So, like states like Oklahoma that get bisected by the hundredth meridian have some really weird water law. <laughs> yeah, like what if you live on that line? Uh, I don't know. That is a good question. Usually, those states have like a uh, mixed between riparian and prior appropriation. They like try to figure out what works best for their people. It's not like states mm. are like, no, we have to stay with riparian law. Wait, what's riparian law? Riparian law is the um the body of administrative law that basically tells states how to administer water on the eastern side of the United States and the eastern side oh, okay. of the hundredth meridian. Okay, okay. And then there's a whole other section of law for the western yes. side of the states, Called which is prior appropriation. Prior appropriation. 
and there which are... is exactly what we were just talking about yes okay thank you for drawing all of the connecting lines no, no <laughs> it's so <good>. nice <laughs> okay so if i built my hypothetical cabin on the side of the river and i put it to beneficial use then i get access to there's like two questions here so first i get access to as much water as i need for the beneficial use is that right yes um there's a there are a couple different versions of prior appropriation that like and like versions of beneficial use that let you get more or less water Mm -hmm. um but usually it's like how much water do you reasonably need for this use right like if you have a hundred acres of crops you're probably going to need more water for that use but if you have like a singular field you're Mm -hmm. gonna need less for that okay and then and then the state will tell you whether or not you can (laughs) okay so so whatever beneficial use is has to be decided by somebody and so do if i've got 100 acres where i'm farming uh cheatgrass and i just throw it in the water but i try to make a really big case that um cheatgrass is you know beneficial use is somebody going to look at that and tell me this doesn't seem like beneficial use or um it depends on whether or not your version of beneficial use has an adverse effect on another user okay so technically if you were going to farm a hundred acres of cheatgrass (laughs) (laughs) um and it wasn't adversely affecting anyone you could probably do it, but mm-hmm. be like, say in Montana, which is the the like specific version of prior appropriation that I'm most comfortable talking about mm-hmm. and like most familiar with. In Montana, the DNRC is probably going to go to you and be like, "Hey, hundred acres of cheatgrass. That's you. You don't need water for that, right? <laughs> or hey, you need to stop that. Yeah, um, just because." I'm pretty sure cheatgrass is considered invasive. And Okay, and the DNRC is the Department of Natural Resources and Conservation? Yes. And that's the basically the state, the state of Montana's, like, BLM or Forest Service. Yeah, they kind of, they do, yeah. I'd say they're a common, they seem to do, like, a combination of, like, BLM Forest Service stuff. Okay, so there is a process in which my water right is prioritized based on how beneficial it is or at least whether or not it has externalities affecting someone or something else can you rephrase that question yeah like so if like the cheatgrass example it's even if i would like my grandpa's grandpa bought that property and i have this specific and they've been farming tomatoes up until now and i decide to change what we're farming and I'm just totally destructive and I'm farming knapweed or whatever. There Knapweed is great for bees. <laughs> right, okay. I'm farming but... something totally terrible and it just is leaking poison into the waterway and my neighbors are getting sick because of this horrible thing that I'm farming. There, My question is, is there somebody or some governing system that is going to review this and say okay we need to change up your water rights or um yeah so that would be the dnrc that would be in charge of reviewing water rights and like making sure that your beneficial use is still beneficial Mm -hmm. um especially so in administering those water rights the dnrc has a whole 
process for basically if you are using that right for a different beneficial use then you have to put in a uh, change of use form okay or if you um, are adversely affecting your neighbors like you are putting a noxious weed into their pastures and their horses are eating it and dying or Mm -hmm. something along those lines uh, where they have enough of a a stake in it to say that hey this is an adverse effect to me yeah um the dnrc has a whole process for dealing with those um conflicts and figuring out what's best for both the senior water right user and the junior water right so like senior water right holders they do have a fair amount of power mm-hmm. um like if a junior wa- water right holder is taking too much water and the senior holder is not getting their full amount Mm -hmm. then they can do what's called calling the river and that will get them their the rest of their water pretty much um and make and then basically the dnrc is like hey junior water rights holder you need to stop using as much as you are Um, okay and then the senior holder can do that but if there's like a conflict over what you're using your water for they usually try and resolve the use before they change the amount of water that you're getting. Hmm. Okay. So they won't like be like, "Hey, you're growing cheatgrass. We're gonna take all your water." Mm-hmm. Um, because they're like legally bound to, or they have a strong preference toward keeping water rights with the citizens who have them. Okay. And a water right is a right to use the water. It's not a right to own the water. Okay. So yeah, you have a lot of your traction towards being able to access this water is pretty strong if you've been there in the area for a while. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, so this makes me think now so you're saying we've got we've got a measurable ish amount of water, give or take, which on the prior appropriation side of the hundredth meridian is not that much. And then you have a bunch of people settling around different water resources and having basically parts of a water right administered by states. And then you have senior and junior water right holders. I would imagine that in states, especially where there is less water, there's probably a lot of competition around who gets to use the water. Is that right? Yeah, I'd say that there's a fair amount of competition. Um, at this point, the majority of the usable water in the West has been allocated. Mm. Um, oh, and wow. usually the movement of water or like the amount of water changing only happens when people sell their water right or decide that they want to change their use. Hmm. There's also some like a really cool concept called reserved rights, which is basically the reason that states can say, hey, we want to preserve this stream for bull trout. So we're going to reserve a certain amount of water in this stream. Mm -hmm. And those reserved rights often have a priority date that is senior to a fair amount of water rights. So they can like keep that water there. But yeah, the the majority of water in in the West has been allocated. And when you say majority, do you have like a number? Is it like 90%? It's like I'd say it's it's pretty damn close to a hundred percent. Okay. Like so you have I'd say it's definitely more than two thirds, probably closer to 
95 to 100% of the water has been allocated. Wow. Um, at least, like, for... It might have been reserved for something. Mm-hmm. Um, like, reserved to be in this reservoir to keep it so that the town of... Libby. Oh, so yeah, so that the town of Libby has drinking water. Okay. But generally, like, the water that exists mm-hmm. has a use. Okay. Wow. So you have basically... All of the water on the western <laughs> side of the United States, all of it is associated with a use of some sort. So we're basically just waiting for the, the snow to melt, and people already know who gets what amount of the melt. Yep. Wow. And, like, the Colorado River Basin is incredibly complicated in that sense, like, mm-hmm. waiting for the snow to melt so that Lake Powell and Lake Mead, which are both reservoirs behind mm-hmm. dams, so that they fill up, so that they can release a certain amount of water every single day at the same time to fill the other one, and then release to the city of Las Vegas and the city of Los Angeles. Okay. There's obviously a lot of like a lot of people bidding on the water. Does this affect... I mean, I know California's got, been going through a lot of droughts. Does this affect people's access to drinking water? Are we at the point where we're worrying about that in the U.S.? Or is it more... Do we have an abundance of water and just everybody likes to use the water or do we have a shortage of water? I think it, I don't want to say that we have a full on shortage of water at this point because we do technically have enough water to sustain what we're doing. Mm -hmm. But if the city of Los Angeles gets any bigger, their drinking water needs are going to grow again Mm -hmm. and they're there are like certain levels of water that have to be kept in Lake Mead mm-hmm. to uh, be considered for it to be considered like okay, okay, like a good water source, like a reliable water source. Yeah, um, and it's getting incredibly close to not being filled enough to continue sustaining things. It like it definitely varies um, year to year with snow melt, with rainfall, mm-hmm. but yeah, I wouldn't say that we have necessarily. It sounds like the you... answer is really complicated and hard, and like yeah. that shortage is a very not necessarily a scary word, but just right. It's alarming. Yeah. So it sounds like maybe we just need to be more efficient with how we're using our water. Even the word efficient has some like baggage that goes along with it. Really? Because um, the use, at least in Montana, the way that we um used to manage water. Mm-hmm was based on efficiency like we want to be as efficient with this water as possible we want you to like there was a huge um like a wave of changing flood irrigation to uh like the big rotating sprinkler irrigation the ones that are like circles yeah yeah um and those are technically more efficient with water but a lot of people's water rights depended on the flood irrigation that recharged the aquifer in the river. Okay. So, like, when they people would flood their fields, the water that was not taken up by the plants would go back into the ground, into yeah. the aquifer, and feed okay. a river or a stream or just the aquifer itself. Okay, so where was the, where was the conflict here? So the conflict uh, was the use of the word efficient. And, okay. like, flood irrigation recharged a lot of the sources of water for other people to have the ability to use it. Right. And then the switch to a more efficient system Mm -hmm. removed that recharge from the entire equation 
Okay. So it was technically more efficient. Air quotes. But it wasn't giving everybody right. their amount of water that they were supposed to have. Oh, that's and, really interesting. And honestly, sometimes those, um, the big like, uh, why can't I remember what the what they're called? They're I feel like it's the like, sprinklers. Yeah, they're, they're like big sprinkler systems, like oh, yeah. rotational sprinkler. I know systems. what you're talking about. They have like a motor and a post in the middle, and then yeah. they have a bunch of tractor wheels, and they just like yeah. go in a circle. Yeah, they're actually not that efficient, even. Okay. <laughs> like, a lo- if they people would definitely use them in the middle of the day when it's hottest, and then like all of that water would just evaporate before it hit the ground. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So you you're probably spraying a lot more water into the air versus i mean letting it infiltrate to the groundwater right recharge other things and yeah you're flooding something but because it's like you're basically taking water from i don't know a water system like in a drainage or whatever Mm -hmm. and flooding an area right next to the drainage so even if you use way too much it's just gonna go back where you had it yeah and it's not i'm not like trying to say that one is better than the other i'm just kind of trying to illustrate the the different ways that water ended up being used and like i think i personally think that um because we switched to the more efficient system with the rotating sprinklers it i had a point and it's gone now it was literally right there and then i hit the (laughs) mic and it just went gone forever so we did we did officially switch from flood irrigation to sprinkler uh irrigation. Is that oh in so, Montana anyway? Um that's what the DNRC was promoting for a long time in terms of like being more efficient with your water and like being more environmentally friendly, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. But what I was going to say that I remembered is that the the switch ended up with like more water being available to be allocated because mm-hmm. people people's systems weren't using as much and then that water got given to oh. junior water rights holders right for like for them to use which ended up in us over allocating basins and there are several basins in the state of Montana and when i say a basin i mean it's like situated around a certain river system or a certain um right like mountain range but there are basins in montana that are considered closed you cannot change any of the water rights in them and you can't allocate any more water there because there isn't any more water to allocate and that's like a permanent thing or Uh, as permanent as the dnrc wants to keep it okay closed that's interesting so basically you had these senior water rights holders flood in their fields and then the excess from their share would then be turned over to other people near them pretty much or down like downstream okay and then because we've shifted from doing this flood irrigation it changes the amount of water in a certain area and then more people get bids on the water and then it's being used for more things and now we're getting all these closed systems where everybody has a a bid on some of the water that's coming in pretty much yeah wow water is scary dude (laughs) it yeah it determines a lot of what we can do Mm -hmm. especially in the west but just like in terms of even conservation or being able to drink clean water yeah um so the state has the state basically has a say in where the water ends up 
like yes. a big say and then the feds above them have the biggest say yes they generally try not to step on the state's toes though they like unless it becomes a matter that has to do with the clean water act Mm -hmm. um or the safe drinking water act like a a federal law they try to stay out of it Mm -hmm. just because it makes more sense for states to determine what happens within their borders right which are still arbitrary arbitrarily drawn and i have a problem with it okay but generally there's also like a history of the federal government and the state governments mm-hmm. coming to blows not like literal blows but just like right having big conflicts over what should and should not happen when it comes to water and like wildlife conservation and just generally environmental things like the yeah the epa at this point is i don't even know what they're doing <laughs> i don't <But>. either <laughs> um okay so hypothetically i buy a piece of property in a closed basin and i have no water rights well okay first of all when i buy a piece of property does it include water rights it depends it depends <laughs> yeah on, like, that's whether... my favorite answer <laughs> <laughs> um like if there are water rights associated with that piece of property and okay. you buy the property and the water rights yeah. from the previous person mm-hmm. then yes you do have water rights uh they can also separate those water rights from the property and just sell you the property oh interesting so that might be something you want to look at. Yeah. Okay, say I buy a piece of property in this closed basin and Jim and Joe, who sold me this farm, um, wanted... They sold me the farm, but not the water rights. Not Maybe it's not a farm. It's just a house. Just anyway, a house. They sold me a house with some acreage without the water rights and I am living on this piece of property. Do I... It's right next to a river. Do I have a right to get at least drinking water from the water source? Usually if you're buying a piece of property with like a house on it, it has water rights that are associated with like domestic use. Okay. So those, I believe, I might have to look this one up, but I'm pretty sure like domestic use rights that go with a house, Mm -hmm. at least if you're buying a piece of property, those stay with the house. Otherwise the house like decreases exponentially in value. Okay. Right. Then they'd just be selling you like a, a dry cabin, which yeah. you could live in a dry cabin. Lots of people do. But mm-hmm. um, I think it's less, it happens less for people to be like, you, you're not going to have any water rights to go with this house. Right. Um, often, if you like, if you're buying like a farmhouse that has fields attached to it and some people separate water rights from it, usually mm-hmm. they'll separate like irrigation rights Okay. and keep they'll keep the ownership of that right of the irrigation right but they'll leave like the domestic use rights interesting way and we can go over beneficial use if you want but it changes state to state oh we should go over that but my i had one more question before we jump into that mm-hmm. um so i i buy this house no water right no irrigation right but i have domestic use right and then i want to start a garden and I get really enthusiastic about my garden, and it starts taking up more water than normal for a domestic use, right? Mm-hmm. What happens? Like, do they tell me I have to stop gardening, or? Um, so it depends. Usually, conflicts arise when you are using enough water to adversely affect another Someone user else. or okay. like a senior user. Okay. So I I think we've like brought up the phrase adverse effect a couple different times but 
that's basically it is what it sounds like mm-hmm. it's you are negatively affecting someone else's ability to use their water mm-hmm. and they get upset about it and go to the DNRC or like usually the DNRC is like, Hey, can you guys talk about this and like figure it out yourselves so that we don't have to get legally involved oh. because DNRC and enforcing power and like water law is always complicated. Interesting. But if you can't figure it out for yourself, they can go to the DNRC and be like, Hey, this person is adversely affecting my water, right? Which there are a couple of different uh, ways that they can do that that can happen and if it's a big enough issue they will step in and be like hey you can't use that much water for your garden unless you have a water right okay for it wow that's interesting okay so beneficial use is something okay we talked about it a little bit earlier right you have to be putting your water to a beneficial use to have a right to that water thus why i couldn't grow um poisonous cheatgrass for 12 years (laughs) oh that would suck um and what was the phrase that you used to describe prior appropriation uh first in time first in right okay first in time first in right but then there is the variable of beneficial use that also determines whether or not you continue to hold that right i mean as if you refuse to stop doing the thing that is having adverse effects on then you go to court others, then you go to court mm-hmm. okay so beneficial use is a is a part of it um according to the dnrc of montana beneficial uses of water include domestic stock irrigation lawn and garden mining municipal industrial commercial agricultural spraying fisheries wildlife and recreation wow and do any of those take priority over the other legally? Uh, usually, like, domestic uses are generally um, the ones that are most, they're, like, they're the most guaranteed generally because everybody needs safe drinking water. Everybody needs to be able to, like, flush their toilet. Yeah. Um, and, like, domestic uses, like, most of the water that, say, the city of Missoula administers is mm-hmm. for domestic use. Okay. Um. Other than that, well, I guess that's actually, that's not domestic use. That is municipal use. Pardon my flub. Okay, Um, no worries. Domestic use would be like a groundwater well on a piece of property Mm, that you use to like get drinking water. So for municipal use, like I pay a water bill to the city of Missoula. Mm -hmm. If they hold that water right, mm, I was going to ask why am I paying them? But I guess distribution and plumbing and things like that. Yeah, pretty much. Instead of like you having to pay for all of the infrastructure that goes along with administering right. a municipal water right, or like if you were to have a water a well, you would right. have to pay for all of the infrastructure to get it into your house to be able to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, the city of Missoula pays for all of that infrastructure, pays for the people to go fix it mm-hmm. if it gets broken, um, all of the treatment for that water. Wow. Uh, they cover a lot. Like Yeah, yeah. I, I suddenly have less resentment about my <laughs> water bill payment every month. Yeah, and honestly, it's probably the least expensive thing that we pay for. Like, I have more of a beef with Northwestern. I, I really dislike them. The energy? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's a whole nother. That's a whole oh, other yeah. story. 
other than we could talk about all of their hydroelectric <laughs> stuff for like days but oh, we're just we'll just leave it so we have all this water flowing into people's lands used for irrigation stock etc cetera, etc cetera. and we basically at this point it sounds like have a bid on most of the water meaning almost 100 percent Mm-hmm. Unless there's like excess rainfall or a larger amount of snow melt. Yeah. Um, like we can't use all of the water that goes into the Clark Fork right. during like spring runoff in April, May. Right. But. Right. Okay. Okay. I have two questions. First, some states have. Okay. So we have the Columbia River, right? Mm-hmm. And the Columbia River goes by certain states first and there's like more drainages in certain states and less when you get to Oregon and Washington. Um, How do states resolve water rights claims? Like between the two states? Yeah. So if um, Colorado or Utah wants more access to the Colorado River versus where else does it go? Nevada? Um. Arizona. Nevada, Arizona, California, um, also New Mexico Mm -hmm. uh, has part of that basin in it and like drains off into the Colorado River. Okay, so how do we decide who gets what share of the Colorado River? So there are like interstate water compacts. Mm. Um, There's specifically one for the Colorado River and it... Is that a law compact? Yes. (laughs) Yes is the short answer. Like an agreement? Um, so the Colorado River Water Compact, which I am looking up so I don't misquote it, was created in 1922. Mm-hmm. Um, and it basically, it's like um, a larger version of a state water compact. Okay. Uh, and a water compact is essentially a legal document that tells everybody exactly how much water is being used for what by who. Wow. Um, so... The Colorado River Compact, it's specifically split up into the upper basin and the lower basin. And uh, these are like groups of states that are put together and close, closer to each other. So like they have more interconnecting basins okay. and have to manage within those basins. And then the lower states have the same thing. Okay. But when I say upper and lower, I mean like upper and lower reaches of the Colorado River. Mm-hmm. So the upper state, who are the states like more northern and more southerly yes essentially or just like like northeast to southwest yeah okay um because it kind of runs like diagonally across the united right diagonally across the united states Mm -hmm. um but yeah the water compact pretty much decides who gets what water to do what not necessarily like i guess the why is like what use it is Mm -hmm. um and like how much water um and it also dictates like what needs to be done to keep this amount of water going to this place okay so when when we're talking about how much water a state or a certain water right owner gets are we talking about a percent of a share of a certain basin or drainage or are we talking about like a specific like volumetric measurement of water specific volumetric measurement okay and uh these are measured in acre feet which is the so if you were to like have an acre foot out to look at it, mm-hmm. it is an acre of land okay. filled up to a foot or filled with a foot of water. Oh, wow. So that is an acre foot of water. Okay. 
And then there are, there were supposed to be how much water is in the Colorado River Basin. It's something like 7 million acre feet or something. Wow. Conservative estimate on, this is from Yale's uh, website. It is an article probably written by a college student published at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. It's so it's supposed to be 15 million approximately acre feet in the entire Colorado River Basin and then that is split in half between the upper basin and the lower basin. Wow. So the um the upper states are supposed to be using 7.5 million acre feet and the lower basin is supposed to be using 7.5 million acre feet. The problem is that there that estimate was done in 1920-ish. Mm. So we didn't actually have like good remote sensing of any kind <laughs> um, in the early 1900s, and they were estimating how much water was in that basin off of some interesting math. Like it was, it's not accurate anymore. Okay. We do not have that much water in the basin. Okay. Yeah, I just did some uh, quick math on my calculator, and 15 million acre feet would be the equivalent of if you took each acre and stacked it on top of each other, it would make a water skyscraper that reached to cruising altitude of 35,000 feet, and then you would multiply that by 428 times. That's a lot of damn water. <laughs> it is a lot of water, and it all ends up going through the Grand Canyon, which oh, is kind of yeah. cool. Oh, that uh, makes well, sense. most of it. And so, uh, when was this published? This was published January 22nd, 2019, so not too long ago. But this article from Yale's School of Forestry is saying that a conservative estimate on how much Colorado River water is actually used is 20 million acre feet. 20, wow. So bigger, more. Yes. Okay. Um, and like the water is so weird in terms of like my brain gets kind of messed up every time I try and think about like how they're measuring the water that is going through the basin because technically it's like all the same amount of water but it's also going from one side of a river to the other okay so they're like measuring yeah. it at certain points in the middle and seeing like how much water is actually there and then you probably have to account for how much water everyone along the basin is using mm -hmm. and then just add that all up until you get to the sea yeah, yeah. and california pretty much has the largest amount of water allocated to it at this point. Okay. In terms of like per state. And they're still using They're using a lot. Most of it. Mm -hmm. All of it. Um okay, so this brings in the question is is this going to change over time the amount of water that is going to be there through like droughts or climate change or things like that? I'd say yes. It's like I think that is very yes i think that change is like an inevitable part of a water system mm -hmm. um i don't think that it's going to stay the same in mm -hmm. for the next like five years versus the next 50 years it's i don't know if it will necessarily be significantly less every year but i think that it's gonna definitely have to change based on the amount of water that we estimate is in each river or each system right every year um especially in the colorado colorado river basin there's like a lot of users um and you have to make everybody happy right or try to right um so a lot of states have started implementing 
or they've like started drought implementation plans mm-hmm. um, or drought mitigation. So like asking people during times of drought to use less of their water rights so that they can keep more in the river so that more people can use it later on. Right. Um, there's a, a specific nonprofit organization in Montana called the Blackfoot Challenge mm-hmm. that does a really great job of getting the community involved in their own drought mitigation and like yeah. other environmental issues they don't just do water they're like they're a nonprofit that takes care of like conservation issues or like tries to talk about conservation issues with communities in the blackfoot valley okay which stretches from like just this western side of lincoln to like potomac area okay so that's like in montana (laughs) it's like like along highway 200 like pretty big so mid midwestern montana yes okay wow yeah that it's pretty amazing to think that there are so many of us that are implicated, like necessarily implicated in this. And not just to mention people, but any environment or any of the wildlife that is relying off of these water systems. Like basically every water is, I'm quoting my, I think, high school biology textbook. Water is the essence of all life on earth as Indeed, we know it. Indeed it is. <laughs> and it's all allocated already like at least in the united states okay um and in a lot of other places yeah (laughs) and so it's just kind of mind-blowing that this is kind of going on maybe behind the scenes or that it's just not common knowledge to know what happens with your water and how that's affected legally because i mean you're acquainted with the law portion of this Mm -hmm. which seems to at least given this conversation, seems to be the most powerful uh, dictator of what happens to water. Mm-hmm. And, and that's it's not always logical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really funny. I think there was a portion in this uh, water law textbook that was talking about how water is administered and like how some of these concepts for like how water is administered don't follow common logic. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, but why would you categorize something? if it didn't make logical sense or if it doesn't exist like well yeah it's because you're 14 people sitting around uh like a town hall in 1840 trying to figure out how people are going to get their water and who gets to irrigate and yeah that's that and then the the federal government's like hey actually we should probably do something else about this or we need to protect this water so that it doesn't end up with a ton of mining waste in it right or yeah so you're not just creating deserts out of uh once flourishing environments Mm -hmm. or creating flourishing environments out of deserts right like in um (laughs) the san fernando valley las vegas Vegas, but also the san fernando valley where like 70 percent of our um of california's agriculture comes from Mm -hmm. used to be a desert all of the water from um i believe it's the owens river valley like near bishop california all of that water got moved out of that area and put into the San Fernando Valley so that California could grow crops. Okay. So this, like, now flourishing agricultural area used to be a desert. Like okay. sagebrush. And then what happened to the Owens River Valley? It's over-allocated and there's not a lot of water in it. And it's, like, right at the base of the Sierras, too. So they, like, watch all of our snow melt go away. Just, yeah. Just slide past them. Did that... Do you know if that changed how things grow there did that turn it into a desert or um i don't think it turned it into a desert but it definitely like the people that were able to irrigate mm-hmm. and 
like make a living off of agriculture no longer were able to because their water was being like legally allocated to Las Vegas and the San Fernando Valley, not Las Vegas, Los Angeles and the San Fernando Valley. Mm. If you read the book Cadillac Desert or watch the documentary Cadillac Desert or <laughs> uh, watch the movie Chinatown, mm-hmm. those are all like, like the first two are better, but uh, the third one is definitely like an entertaining way to learn about the water crisis Yeah, and in that area. It's interesting that that's probably specifically Chinatown is probably the most famous and maybe the only pop culture thing that discusses this topic. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, water loss. <gasps> Weird. <laughs> yeah. I wish I was more of a hydrologist because I'd like to be able to like exactly explain to you how water moves through particles, but I'm not sure you actually care that much. Not you specifically, you, the royal you, I guess. Mm. No, like, I think I think the royal you cares. Well, <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's a whole other topic. But yeah, pores in soil are weird. No, I'd love to talk to a hydrologist mm-hmm. for when you get done with grad school or hydrology <laughs> training. Oh, I have to take physics for that, though. I avoided taking physics and calculus so that I could talk about water, but not have to be able to measure it. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess. Okay different aptitudes okay so this kind of brings me into well i want to ask you a little bit about what your specialization has been in specifically the research you did in your undergraduate degree and you researched native american water rights and basically tribal or reservation water rights can you talk a little bit about why this specific population and why these water rights are so important and basically a relevant topic today? Yeah, definitely. So like you said, I did my research on tribal water rights settlements. Mm -hmm. Uh, So number one, a water rights settlement is a legal document that tells people how certain parties agreed on water. It's kind of like the water rights compact, like each of the uh, water rights settlements should eventually end up in a compact, which is the legal document dictating how water gets allocated, who gets it, how much water for what. Okay. And then Native American water rights settlements are the legal documents that dictate how much tribes on reservations get to use and for what. Mm-hmm. Um, I was specifically looking at basically all of the Native American water rights settlements and like negotiations that have gone on in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't really focus on any in Alaska just because Alaska Native folks have a different like they're technically corporations. They're not Mm -hmm. on reservations, but this was pretty much in the lower 48. Um, I did not know that. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. the Alaska Native population, I honestly, I think that I'm not really the person that can talk about that in a good mm-hmm. way, but they're, they have some really interesting ways that their like rights get fulfilled uh, by the state of Alaska. Mm-hmm. But in the lower 48, I was pretty much looking at the language in these water rights settlements to see if they talked about um, change or climate change right. uh, in any of them to like... Because these are the adjudication of a tribe's water rights, they dictate how they're going to be used for the rest of time. Mm -hmm. And I guess I didn't really explain why 
Native American tribes need these water right settlements. Uh, it's pretty much because Native folks were removed from their lands and put onto reservations, mm-hmm. as we all know, um, in like 1800s area mm-hmm. era. There we go. And then when they were put onto their reservations, they were given like specific rights that go with those. Um, mostly like you can use this land for whatever, but generally it was a very, it was a fairly small area that was supposed to be the living place for all of the native people of this tribe. Right. And kind of a sovereign country too, right? Yes. Because um, native tribes are sovereign from the United States. Right. And their areas are, they are sovereignties, but they're like, they're still considered, native tribes are still considered, their land and water and everything is still held in trust for them by the United States of America, by the federal government. So they're so they're like sovereign, but not. Are they like states in that sense? Then kind of. Okay. Yeah. Um. They still have their own tribal governments, and they can uh, they can have certain laws on their land. Um. The one that comes to mind right now is the uh, Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes mm-hmm. and their land. Like technically, they can sell their they can sell property within their sovereignty. Mm-hmm. to people outside of their tribe, which is why there are a lot of people who grew up on the Salish Kootenai Reservation, or I guess it's the Flathead, on like the Flathead Reservation, right. who are white people. Yeah, yeah. No, I'd always wondered that because you, if you go through Polson or some of these Montana towns that are mm-hmm. located Rohan. in the Flathead mm-hmm. uh, Reservation, you see a lot of non-Native American culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, pretty much they can they can sell that. Um, okay, so these these tribal water rights are quite specific to basically their sovereignty and how they've negotiated that with the federal government, but all the, the water and their land is held in trust to by the federal government, so the federal government still has the last say legally? Yes. That? Okay, so I would imagine this is pretty complicated, especially when you're talking about, what is it, like 350 or so treaties that were made and then broken mm-hmm. by the federal government. And those are those are just the like federally recognized tribes too. That doesn't include all of the other smaller like tribes that exist that don't have reservations. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they're just like people that live in the, in the United States. Mm-hmm. But they are still a part of a tribe that exists but they're not federally recognized. Okay. So you looked at whether or not the legal documentation contained language that discussed what would happen in the case of changes due to climate change is that right yeah and like for drought mitigation or even like wildlife Mm -hmm. um like reservation of water for wildlife and the reason that native tribes needed these uh settlements and settlement agreements is because when their reservations were created at first they did not have water rights associated with them okay so in the absence of not having water rights Mm -hmm. they just use the water as they normally would uh, because you need to drink water and you need to be able to like irrigate things and you need water to live essentially um and then a lot of these came out of like white settlers with senior water rights being like hey you are adversely affecting my water right you can't do that. And the federal government's like, actually, they don't have a water right, but they need water. So we're going to federally reserve these rights to 
this reservation. Mm. Um, and the compacts are pretty complicated mm -hmm. and require a lot of negotiation. Mm -hmm. um, like the CSKTs, the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribe, they their compact didn't get ratified. It was the negotiations started what in like the early 2000s i think like 2003 or so okay and they didn't get it congressionally ratified until early this year oh wow this year mm -hmm. 2020 that's kind of incredible yeah <laughs> um and, and like when i was in a specific like water policy class we went up there to we like attended presentations that they had created for us to learn about the cskt's water compact and like how they are administering their water and like what they're using it for and how it's culturally culturally significant and mm -hmm. historic use and yeah well all that but um there it was part of my french but it's kind of fucked <laughs> yeah I, w I mean if we're talking about what you've mentioned about prior appropriation and the basic rule is um what is it time <laughs> first in time first in right first in time first in right and then you're looking at all of these people that basically we're using these lands before we got here not getting their water rights until 2020 sometimes yeah <laughs> sometimes or still in court yeah um like uh warm springs reservation technically doesn't have a water rights compact that's uh in oregon like central ish okay. oregon so they're just using water as they would normally use water um mm -hmm. and like people are still developing and it's kind of just like they couldn't decide on how much water to actually give the reservation and for what. Hmm. So they haven't decided on it yet, and it's still in court. Do you think so? Or still like being, I think it actually got sent to Congress. But When you're looking at the water rights for tribal settlements that are ratified, do you think that they honor that rule first in time, first in right, or...? Um, so usually, uh, at least in the settlements that I looked at mm -hmm. uh, and the compacts, uh, they their priority date um, was time immemorial. Okay. And time immemorial means from the beginning of time. <laughs> okay. Because Native uh, American people were in North America and South America and all over the place mm -hmm. since time immemorial. Um, so their water rights are senior to everyone generally there are some specific ones that are not mm -hmm. but usually like a lot of what makes these contested and conflict-ridden is the fact that they are time immemorial rights like mm -hmm. you they have they can use this water before anybody else can okay that makes me think though or i like, want even before like 18 whatever the hell right Okay, so what about if, I mean, I don't know if this has happened, but hypothetically, like there is tribal histories that show that certain peoples have been in certain areas um, before other peoples. So, I mean, has there been any dispute between tribes about the time immemorial? Or Ooh, that is a good question, and I don't actually know the answer to it. Nice yeah, I, I actually, I don't know the answer to that question, like whether or not there have been conflicts between tribes. Like, I assume so. Yeah. I feel like there have been conflicts between everybody. Right. But. I guess um, when you're talking about water rights, it's a little, it's probably yeah. a, a little more I contemporary. Think if there are any, it would be like in Arizona. Yeah. 
Um, just because there are so many reservations, like, kind of packed in close to each other. Mm. Um, okay. Like, the, the Hopi, the Zuni, the Navajo, um, okay. Tohono O'odham, all those folks. I guess the Tohono O'odham are actually in the south okay. of Arizona. But Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was a good tangent. <laughs> Tangents um, are fun. They are fun. When you did this research looking at whether or not there was language specific to climate change in uh, these native water rights settlements what did you find i found nothing <laughs> i found like one instance of the word change being used and it was pretty much just like if you want to change your water right to something else then you have to do blah 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 so not climate change just no climate change. change um there was a little bit about drought mitigation specifically in desert states hmm. uh, like more arid states like new mexico and arizona okay but nothing significant um, I think that not finding anything is just as cool as finding something. Right. Because in not finding evidence of climate change or like change of water right use mm -hmm. in these compacts and settlements, no one's been, either no one's been thinking about it or everybody's been thinking about it, but it's too much of a like hot topic to put into a legal document. Okay. People are afraid of conflict. Afraid of conflict, afraid of like what there were, I think there were a couple of like draft settlements that did talk about, I think those were the ones that talked about like drought mitigation and um, like reserving specific amounts of water for like fish and wildlife use mm -hmm. um, for the future. Mm -hmm. um, I also did like a side tangent search for the word future and there was very little um, existence of like what's going to happen in like in 20 years when yeah. something maybe is different but yeah i think not finding something was alarming but cool like mm -hmm. i presented it to the university of montana um conference of undergraduate research and it was that was the majority of the questions like what do you think this means otherwise like mm -hmm. if if we're not talking about climate change and we're not talking about drought in these settlements do they have any provisions for that mm -hmm. like are they just going to rely on the states for that? Because there are um, there are provisions in state water law that do talk about uh, drought mitigation and okay. everything. But these rights are time immemorial. Like, are they immune to that kind of legal right. influence and a bunch of other questions like that? Yeah. I really wish you could interview my advisor, Brian Chaffin, because he has so much knowledge, but he's also incredibly busy all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's such a cool dude, though. Yeah. He's awesome. I want to, if I was going to do graduate school, like soon, I would definitely want to be like, Hey, can you be my, my advisor, dude? Yeah. Please, please be the head of my committee. And maybe he'll hear this and clear out a couple Brian! hours in his schedule. <laughs> well, that's pretty insane. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Climate change. I mean, okay. I might've asked this already, but what do you think climate change is going to do? Like, does climate change mean we have less rainfall or does it mean that the wa water dries out? Like how is ha like, how is it actually going to affect what's going on if with the world heating up? So um, it's been generally accepted that climate change is like overall the like global heating, like mm -hmm. temperature rising, mm -hmm. which can mean a lot of things in different places uh it can mean that some deserts get drier it can mean that like cold places get warmer but that also means that cold places 
that have a lot of ice are going to get wetter. Okay. It means that there will be more frequent and less predictable storms. So that could mean that a lot of places are getting much more rainfall than they're used to. But usually that's like the already wet places that mm -hmm. are getting wetter. Um, overall, okay. everywhere is going to get warmer. Okay. Uh, which could mean like snowmelt. It means that there, at least in the West, there will probably be less snowfall over time. And mm. therefore, when like whatever snow does fall in the coldest period of the year, it will be there until it warms up enough for it to melt completely. And if that like period of cold, that colder period is shorter because it's overall warmer, there will be less snowfall, less snow melt, mm -hmm. and therefore less water in the system. Oof. Goodbye, ski season. Yeah, unfortunately, that's like my that's my backup job. <laughs> and then probably a lot more fires, I would imagine. Yeah, fire has there are a lot of um a lot of factors that uh, change what a fire season will look like. Like we thought that it was the hundred years of fire suppression that was the main mm. thing, but now it's more linked to climate change because of research that's being done by like the fire lab in Missoula and honestly the. University of Montana's forestry program. Okay. Um, they have like a fire management course. I think they also have like a fire lab sort of. Hmm. But um, yeah, climate change equals larger, scarier fire seasons just because it is warmer and it is drier. Right. And therefore, high intensity burns are going to be more prevalent. Right. Unfortunately. Fuels dry out. Mm -hmm. Fuels don't have the ability to stay wet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just because there isn't. A lot of water so if you were on the u.s i don't know if you were on the cabinet if you were on some advisory board and oh, you dear. got to decide <laughs> or at least have input on what we should do about this what should we do legally to um safeguard ourselves against climate change and i'm sorry but i'm gonna use the word again make our use of water more efficient or i mean just more beneficial i mean what what do you think can be done at this point from this point going out um so actually the colorado river basin is currently doing a pretty good job of addressing those questions mm -hmm. um and if i guess if i was in the cabinet like being an advisor maybe like working in the epa or something mm -hmm. um i would recommend to do kind of what they're doing and that is like being a lot more collaborative um, mm. in their water use. Like we recognize that people are going to need drinking water no matter what. Right. People are going to need like sewage treatment. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's just having open and like honest conversations between stakeholders yeah. about what's going to be important moving forward. Mm -hmm. um, and honestly, it's kind of scary because if you think about it, we all need drinking water. We all need like sewage treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, but we also, we want to keep reaches of river, like, or like stretches of river good for wildlife and conservation and recreation. Right. But we also, unfortunately, we need mining mm -hmm. and um, other in industry. Right. And they also need water to do what they're doing. Right. Like, if you want to continue using your cell phone or if you want to, like, have any of your podcast equipment or right. whatever um, that has to do with, like, plastic or metals. Um, you right. need mining, which also needs water. So I think there's like, it's going to be agriculture yeah. is incredibly important. But I think there's like, we should, 
I don't know, when it comes to, like, specifically drinking water and, like, consumptive use on a personal level, I think that people should just be more conscious of what they're using water for. Like, Mm -hmm. I have a beef with property management companies being like, you need to water your lawn in the middle of July. Right. I think that that is a very useless use of water. Right. Um, But personal, your personal consumption is important, but also, like, industry and mining use a lot of water and there are like better ways for them to be doing what they're doing sans all of that there isn't an easy like good answer like i feel like it depends on what part of water law you're talking about like if i was in a cabinet i'd be like well what part do you want to hear about right now (laughs) yeah yeah. no that makes a lot of sense i mean more minds to the problem Mm -hmm. and then talking to the people that are actually on the ground using the water and seeing how they can adjust what they're doing Mm -hmm. i think that's a really good answer and a non-polarizing answer (laughs) Um, yeah i don't like i also just don't have any like super like i have super strong feelings about water use but it's i've gone through enough of my education like thinking about both sides of the issues and like how you are supposed to collaborate on environmental issues that i'm kind of in the middle at this point right like i don't think that you really 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 need to keep all of this water for every single fishery ever right like you need to mitigate for a lot of people's uses and problems Mm -hmm. and we need to think about it as a big collaborative problem because it is yeah no that makes a hundred percent sense maria thanks for joining me on the podcast this has been really fun thank you for having me on the podcast it was very fun talking about it Thanks, everybody. You can find Maria on Instagram at Ponderioskio. That's P-O-N-D-E-R-R-I-O-S-K-I-O, Ponderioskio on Instagram. And like I said earlier, it's definitely worth checking out her art on Larkspur and Pine on Instagram. She made me a very cool bookmark the other day with bighorn sheep hanging out in the desert. As always, you can support the podcast by subscribing, rating, writing a review, or reaching out to me to give some feedback. Also, you can recommend it to family, friends, random strangers, (laughs) whoever you think might have some interest in the podcast. That's all we've got for you today. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.